Section 24 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology and Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Leo Wiener Chapter 16, Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lori Arsenault Chapter 16 Section 3. Of the sacraments of the Church as means through which divine grace is communicated to us. The sacraments are defined as follows. Quote, 1. A sacrament is a holy action which under a visible form communicates to the soul of the believer the invisible grace of God, an action which was established by our Lord and by which every one of the believers receives divine grace. Consequently, the nature of the sacraments the Church assumes to consist in this, that there are sacramental actions which actually communicate divine grace to the believer, that they are not only signs of divine promises, but instruments which necessarily act through grace upon those who proceed toward them. As essential qualities of each of the sacraments, it regards a the divine establishment of the sacrament, b, some visible or sensual image, and c, the communication of invisible grace by the sacrament to the soul of the believer. Unquote. It is necessary to direct the attention to the definition of the nature of the sacraments and to the words, quote, divine establishment of the sacraments, unquote, in order that we may later be able so much the more clearly to analyze the deception on which the theology tries to establish the dogma of the sacraments. Seven sacraments are counted out, and the heresies of all the other Christians, except of our hierarchy, are refuted. Here are the heresies. Quote, 1. Of the nature of the sacraments. According to Luther, they are simple signs of divine promises for the sake of rousing our faith in Christ, who remits sins. According to Calvin and Zwingli, they are divine signs, by which the one who is chosen is confirmed in the faith into which he is received, and in the divine promises, or he still more confirms his church in his faith than he confirms himself. The Socinians and Armenians see in the sacraments mere external rites, by which the Christians differ from the Gentiles. The Anabaptists regard the sacraments as allegorical signs of spiritual life. The Swedenborgians regard them as symbols of a mutual union between God and man. The Quakers and Ardukobers completely reject the visible side of the sacraments, and recognize them only as internal spiritual actions of the heavenly light. All these and other similar conceptions about the sacraments, which are held by various Protestant sects, with all their differences, agree in this, that they equally reject the true conception about the sacraments as external sacramental actions, which actually communicate divine grace to the believers, and through it regenerate, renovate, and sanctify man. 2. 
of the number of sacraments, as though not satisfied with the mere rejection of the true conception about the nature and efficacy of the sacraments, Protestantism has extended its sacrilegious hand upon this, in that it has diminished the number of sacraments, and although in the beginning the Protestants showed a great diversity of opinion in this matter, they have finally agreed, of course, each sect in its own way, to recognize only two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist. Of our dissenters, the so-called popeless sectarians, though not denying that seven sacraments have been established, are satisfied with two only, saying, in need two of them are sufficient, baptism and repentance, and the others are not necessary. 3. Of the conditions for the performance and actuality of sacraments. According to Luther's doctrine, no lawfully established priest or bishop is needed for the performance of the sacraments. The sacraments may be performed by any clergyman or layman, by either man or woman, and they preserve their power no matter how they are performed, even without any intention of performing, and even with ridicule or mystically. A full half of our dissenters, who form the popeless sect, permit laymen also to perform the sacraments, but the other half, under the name of the popish sect, leave them to the clergy, but to clergymen who are either under the ban or even entirely unfrocked, and who have in any case run away from the Orthodox Church, and have renounced it for the sake of joining the dissenting sect. On the other hand, the ancient Donatists in the twelfth century, and later the Waldenses and the Albigenses, and beginning with the fifteenth century, the Wycliffs, fell into the opposite extreme, asserting that for the performance and efficacy of the sacraments, not only a legally established priest, but even a virtuous priest was needed, and that the sacraments which were performed by a tainted servant of the altar had no significance whatever. Finally, the Reformers and Lutherans invented a doctrine that the efficacy of the sacraments depended not on the worth and inner disposition of the performer of the sacraments, but on the disposition and faith of the persons who received the sacraments, so that the sacrament is a sacrament and has power only during its acceptance and application together with faith, and that when it is not used or when it is not accepted with faith, it is not a sacrament and remains sterile." Unquote. The theology does not refute these heresies, but proceeds to expound its doctrine about the sacraments, each separately. I will analyze each one of these so-called sacraments, but first it is necessary to point out the deceit of the specious proof of the divine establishment of the sacraments, which alone and in one and the same form will be applied to all the sacraments. The deception consists in the following. In the definition of the sacrament, it was said that it is an external action which communicates actual grace, that is, a special spiritual power, 
given to him who receives the sacrament as established by Christ. And then it is pointed out that Christ has prescribed to the believers and to his disciples, but only in the case of baptism, a certain external action, and from this the conclusion is drawn that Christ has established the sacraments, that is, such actions as, when they are performed by the hierarchy, communicate to the believers a special spiritual power. The deception consists in this, that the assertion is made that Christ established the sacrament, that is, an external action which communicates internal grace, or, to speak more correctly, that Christ established the dogma of the sacrament, that is, the teaching that the immersion into water or the eating of bread and drinking of wine communicates some especial power to him who is immersed or who eats bread and drinks wine. In order to prove the establishment of the Christian dogma of the sacraments, it is necessary to show that Christ ascribed to those external actions to which the hierarchy points, calling them sacraments, those properties which the hierarchy ascribes to them, whereas there is not only no indication, but not even the slightest hint at such an understanding of the sacraments as practiced by Christ. In asserting that Christ commanded men to bathe and sup in remembrance of him, the hierarchy has not the slightest foundation for the assertion that Christ established the sacraments of baptism and of the Eucharist with all the meaning which the hierarchy ascribes to them, and about which there is, and there can be, no hint in Christ's teaching. Thus Art 202 proves the divine origin of baptism as a sacrament by pointing out that Christ said to his disciples, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, 18-20 He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. Unquote. In the first place, Mark 16, 16 is a later addition to the gospel, like that other tempting addition that believers shall take up serpents and not be hurt by drinking deadly things. Even if the genuineness of this passage be admitted, neither from it nor from Matthew twenty-eight nineteen does it follow that baptism communicates any special power to those who are baptized. In Matthew, men are to be baptized and taught to observe whatever Christ has commanded, in Mark, it is mentioned that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Where is there the establishment of the sacrament such as it is defined to be by the theology? All that may be said from these verses in Matthew and in Mark in favor of the rite of bathing is that Christ has selected, or more correctly, 
has not rejected the external sign of bathing adopted by his predecessor John for all the believers in his teaching. But everything which is understood by the hierarchy under the invisible action of baptism has been established by that hierarchy, and by no means by Christ. That may be seen from the subsequent exposition of the article, in which there is a detailed account of the visible and the invisible side of the sacrament, for which no indication can be found in Holy Scripture. A reader's note. Here the writer refers to sections in the theology 203, 204, 205, and so on. 203. The Visible Side of Baptism There is a detailed exposition of the sacrament about what to bathe in, how many times to immerse, who is to do the bathing, and what is to be said during the act. The proof is given that those who do differently are heretics, and that grace does not operate if there is any deviation from these rules. 204. The invisible actions of the sacrament of baptism and its unrepeatedness. Here it is said that at the same time that the catechumen is visibly immersed in the waters of baptism with the words, quote, The slave of God is recognized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, unquote. Divine grace invisibly operates on the whole being of the one who is baptized, and one regenerates or recreates him, two purifies him from all sin and justifies and sanctifies him, three makes him a child of God and a member of Christ's body, four saves him from eternal punishment for sins and makes him an inheritor of eternal life." Unquote. All that has not the slightest foundation in Christ's teaching. 205. The Necessity of Baptism for All The Baptism of Babes Baptism by Blood The proof is given that it is necessary to baptize infants because they are cursed by the original sin, and if an unbaptized child dies, it goes to hell, whereas if it is baptized, it goes to heaven. All that is proved from Holy Scripture. 206. Who may perform baptism, and what is demanded of those who are baptized? It is proved that priests ought to baptize, but deacons may sometimes, and sometimes even simple people may. All that is proved from Holy Scripture. To be baptized one needs faith, the same that was spoken of in the article about grace and repentance. When infants are baptized, the sponsors must guarantee their faith, that is, pronounce the words of the creed and renounce the devil. It is evident that all that has been established not by Christ, but by one of the many diverging hierarchies. After baptism follows unction with chrism. 207. Connection with what precedes the place of the sacrament of unction with chrism in the series of the rest, the conception about this sacrament and its name. Through baptism we are born into spiritual life and pure from all sin, justified and sanctified do we enter into Christ's kingdom of grace. But as a natural living man, the moment he is born he has need of air, light, 
and the other external assistances and powers for the support of his existence, for his gradual strengthening, and for his growth, even so it is in spiritual life. Immediately after man's birth from above, he has need of the grace-giving powers of the Holy Ghost, which may serve for him as spiritual air and light, and with the aid of which he may not only support his new life, but also constantly strengthen himself and grow. It is these divine powers which pertain unto life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3, that are given to each who is reborn in baptism, through another sacrament of the church, through the sacrament of unction with chrism. It is proved that the sacrament of unction with chrism was established by Christ. Here are the proofs. Quote, 1. Gospel history proves that Christ the Savior had intended and promised to give the Holy Ghost to those who believed in him. In the last day, that great day of the feast, says St. John the Divine, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In parentheses, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. John seven thirty-seven through 39 Close parentheses. Here, evidently, mention is made of gifts of the Holy Ghost, which are offered to and consequently are necessary for all believers in our Lord Jesus, and not of extraordinary gifts, which are communicated only to a few believers for special purposes, 1 Corinthians 12.29, and so forth. Though it does not say by what visible mediation the necessary gifts of the Holy Ghost are to be transmitted to all believers. 2. The book of the Apostolic Acts tells us that after Jesus Christ was glorified, the apostles actually gave the Holy Ghost to those who believed in him, and that they did by the laying on of hands. Such, for example, is the following case. Now when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Acts 8, 14-17 From this it is quite clear, a, that the Holy Ghost was communicated by the apostles, not through baptism, in which the believers are only regenerated or recreated by the Holy Ghost suddenly, without receiving him forever, but by the laying on of hands on the one who is baptized. b. That by this laying on of hands the apostles communicated to the believers the gifts of the Holy Ghost, which are necessary for all who have received baptism, but not extraordinary gifts, which are communicated only to the few. C. That this laying on of hands, 
united with a prayer to God about sending the Holy Ghost down on those who are baptized, should form a special sacrament distinct from baptism, and d. Finally, that this sacrament, distinct from baptism, has a divine origin, because the apostles in all their words and acts, in spreading the gospel teaching, were inspired by the Holy Ghost, who taught them every truth, and brought to their remembrance all the things which the Lord Jesus had commanded them. John 14, 26, 16, 13. The deception which the hierarchy has appropriated to itself for the purpose of assuring the flock that Christ has established the sacraments consists, as we have seen, in taking the slightest hint given by Christ or the apostles in regard to some external action and ascribing to it the improper meaning of a sacrament and of asserting that Christ has established that sacrament. But this deception has some plausibility only in the case of baptism. In the other cases there is not even any cause for deception, and the hierarchy has to invent the cause itself, as it has done in the present case. Because Christ has said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It follows that all have to be anointed with oil, and that Christ promises a special advantage from it. Then follows the exposition of the dogma. 209. The visible side of the sacrament of unction with chrism. The visible side consists in this, that the anointing is done in the form of a cross, and certain words are pronounced. Proofs from Holy Scripture. 210. The invisible side of unction with chrism and its unrepeatedness. The invisible action consists in this, that the Holy Ghost enters into him who is being anointed, and there enters grace, one, which enlightens in the truth of faith, two, confirms in godliness. Mention is made that in former days they began to prophesy and speak in various tongues after it, but now that does not happen. The Holy Ghost merely enters. 2.11. To whom the sacrament of unction with chrism belongs, and when it is to be performed. A priest, and not the bishop only, may anoint with chrism, and so the Catholics are wrong, and that is proved at great length. 2.12. Connection with the preceding. Conception of the Sacrament of the Eucharist, its superiority, and different appellations. Quote, Through the sacrament of baptism we enter Christ's kingdom of grace, pure, justified, regenerated for spiritual life. In the sacrament of unction, with chrism, we receive in ourselves the powers of grace, which are necessary for our strengthening and growth in the spiritual life. Finally, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, we are made worthy for the same high purpose of partaking of the food and drink which gives salvation, the pure flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus, and most sincerely unite with the very fountain of life. Psalm 36, 9
This sacrament, in which we most sincerely unite with God, surpasses all the others. Quote, 1. By its superabundance of mysteriousness and incomprehensibility. In all the other sacraments, the incomprehensibility consists in this, that under a certain visible form, divine grace is invisibly operating upon man. But the substance of the sacraments itself, for example, in baptism, the water, in unction, with chrism, the chrism remains unchangeable. Here, on the contrary, the substance itself changes. The bread and the wine, which keep their form, are miraculously changed into the true body and blood of our Lord, and only then, when they have been received by the believers, do they invisibly produce in them their actions of grace. 2. By the superabundance of the Lord's love for us, and by the extraordinary grandeur of the gift which is communicated to us in this sacrament. In the other sacraments, the Lord Jesus communicates to those who believe in him such or such particular gifts of saving grace in conformity with the substance of each sacrament, gifts which he acquired from men by his death on the cross. But here he offers as food for his believers his own self, his own body and blood, and the believers, directly uniting with their Lord and Savior, are in this manner united with the very fountain of saving grace. 3. Finally, by this that all the other sacraments are only sacraments which act savingly upon man, but the Eucharist is not only the most incomprehensible and the most saving of the sacraments, but at the same time is a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice which is brought to him for all the living and all the dead, and gains his favor. The doctrine about this sacrament indeed differs from all the others. It differs first of all in that it completely departs from the former definition of the sacrament. This sacrament, according to the theology, one, not only gives power to him who receives it, but also represents a constantly repeated miracle. 2. Gives us God to be eaten up. 3. Is a sacrifice which God himself brings for himself. All kinds of phenomena which do not enter into the first definition. According to the definition of this sacrament, it not only communicates grace to those who receive it, but is also a transmutation of a substance a conversion of God into food for men, and a sacrifice of God brought by God himself. But that does not disturb the theology. It goes on to prove that this especial sacrament was established by Christ. 2.13. The divine promise of the sacrament of the Eucharist and its very establishment. To prove that this sacrament was established by Christ, there is adduced from the Gospel, the sixth chapter of John, the words from the Holy Supper and the Epistle to the Corinthians. In looking through the chapter of John, it is easy to see that, avoiding all interpretations and sticking to the literal meaning, he, his flesh and blood, is the bread of life, that he gives that bread of life to men, and that he who will not eat that bread 
will not have life. Christ promises to give to men the bread of life which he calls his flesh and blood, and, without saying what is to be understood by his flesh and blood, commands men to eat that bread. The only conclusion which can be drawn from that is that men must eat the bread which Christ has called his flesh and blood, that this bread exists and must exist, and that therefore men must seek that bread, as he told them to do, but in no way is it possible to draw the conclusion which the church draws, namely, that the bread is the baked leavened bread and grape wine, not every kind of bread and every wine, but that of which we shall be told that Christ has commanded us to partake of. The other place on which is based the sacrament of the Eucharist is the passage from the Gospel and from the Epistle to the Corinthians, where it says that Christ, bidding his disciples farewell, said to them, Here I break bread and give you wine. This is my blood and my body, which is given to save you from sin. Eat and drink, all of you. Christ, before his death, said to his disciples as he broke bread and handed them the cup, This wine and this bread are my flesh and my blood. Drink now, and then do it in remembrance of me. From these words it may be concluded that Christ, bidding his disciples farewell, told them that he was dying for men, and that he commanded them to do likewise, that is, like him to give their body and blood for men. It is possible to conclude that as he broke bread and gave them the wine, he commanded them to think of him. It is possible to stick to the most literal meaning about the flesh and blood and conclude that he did a miracle before his disciples and gave them, in the form of bread and wine, his own body to eat and his blood to drink. It is even possible to conclude that he commanded his disciples to perform the same miracle, that is, out of bread and wine to make the body and blood of each particular disciple. If you wish, it is possible even to conclude the most far-fetched proposition that he commanded them to perform a miracle, which was to make Christ's blood and flesh out of bread and wine. But under no consideration is it possible to conclude what the church concludes from it, namely, that not only the disciples whom he addressed but certain men at certain time and under certain conditions, must produce something similar to that miracle, and must believe and assure others that the bread and wine which they offer is the very body and blood of Christ, that in receiving this bread and wine with the assurance that they are Christ's body and blood, men are saved. This conclusion which our hierarchy makes is absolutely impossible, the more so since the hierarchy asserts that many perform this miracle irregularly. It is impossible to tell when this miracle is performed, and when not, for there are no other signs of that miracle but faith in the fact that it is being performed. However, it is superfluous to prove the irrationalness and arbitrariness of this sacrament. It is sufficient to follow out the conclusions to which the theology leads in this matter, having accepted that conception of it 
in order that the absurdity of this sacrament and its blasphemy may become manifest. 2.14. The Visible Side of the Sacrament of the Eucharist The visible side of the sacrament consists, one, of the substance employed, two, of the sacramental action, and three, of words pronounced. The bread used in it must be of wheat, pure and leavened. There are five pages of proof that the bread must be leavened. The wine must be made from grapes. There are described all the manipulations which the priest must perform during it, the offertory, the liturgy, and the words which are to be pronounced. It also mentions which words are the most important of all. 2.15. The invisible essence of the sacrament of the Eucharist, the actuality of the presence of Jesus Christ in that sacrament. The invisible action consists in this, that not symbolically, as some say, not with the superabundance of grace, as others say, not essentially, not through the penetration of the bread, but truly and actually, so that after the sanctification of the bread and wine, the bread is transformed, transubstantiated, transmuted into the true body of Christ, which was born in Bethlehem of the ever-Virgin, was baptized in the Jordan, suffered, was buried, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits on the right of God the Father, is to appear in the clouds of heaven. Precisely thus must we believe. End of section 24